Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to another episode of the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo, Japan, and with me in his office in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors, and we have a deep and abiding respect for the craftspeople that inhabit this country. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades now, and are very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how are you doing? Doing well as always, Christopher. This season, as expected, is more challenging. It takes a lot more time to research and get ready for these episodes, but uh, uh, hopefully the listeners will find it rewarding. Yeah, it was fun reading about all of the important luminaries, influencers, and just downright motivated folks in the Japanese whiskey industry from birth through what it is today. It was good. It was a good history lesson. A lot of great reading over the last two days for me anyway. I'm sure it was the same for you. Oh, for me as well. I basically went through every Japanese whiskey related book that I have and a number of websites and was fact checking around the web. And because uh, sometimes I'd find disparate dates in one book versus another and was just trying to find uh, the most accurate information we can give or provide uh, to the listeners. Of course, you know, this doesn't need to be completely academic, complete history lesson, but we'd like to get our facts straight. Uh, as we talk through things. Right. And Mr. Taketsuru was an absolute, well, he's ir irreplaceable in the history of Japanese whiskey. So I have a question. What inspired you to develop this episode anyway? Why, why are we getting into this profile of this man? That's a great question. I went back and listened to the previous episode that we had just done on all the new whiskey distilleries that are opening in Japan. And I realized we really need to set context for that. I mean, Japanese whiskey's been made, like authentic malt whiskey has only been made in Japan for less than 100 years. And it's all due to, well, almost all due to Masataka Taketsuru. And I feel like in understanding him and what he brought to whiskey making in Japan, will give our listeners a fuller understanding of what makes Japanese whiskey Japanese, if we go back to the beginning, right? Sure, sure. Okay, so when does that all start? Well, as we talked about way back in episode five, when we talk about the origins of Japanese whiskey, we get into a lot of this history, but the real date, the real moment that Japanese whiskey starts is known down to the minute. It was 11, 11 p.m. on November 11th, 1924. <laughs> really? Well, sorry, what? Yeah, that, that's actually the date and time when they first fired the stills in the Yamazaki distillery to do their first stripping run for their first malt whiskey. Huh. Before that moment, malt whiskey had never been made in Japan before. And malt whiskey is really what defines Japanese whiskey today, at least the premium whiskeys that we, we like to talk about. That's interesting. I had no idea that November 11th had another important connotation. The only one I was aware of was Poki Day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something of a commercial holiday here in Japan. I don't know how important that is. I think this is a better way to remember November 11th. All apologies to Guriko or whatever the company is that makes Poki, but wow. All right. Sure. But I think I know where I want to be 
on November 11th at 11, 11 p.m. on 2024? Ah. The 100th anniversary of the firing of that first still. I have a feeling there's going to be a party. You would hope so, unless Yamazaki Distillery is hoping to kind of cover up that part of its origin story, since now we mostly associate Taketsuru with Nikka. But anyways, that's I digress. That's a conversation for later in this podcast, right? And I guess in keeping with Taketsuru's background story, his history, his genesis as the, the godfather of Japanese whiskey, I guess we have to go back to his trip to Scotland, right? That's right. And how he gets there is pretty fascinating in its own right. And I think what, what he did there is is pretty well known. So we'll probably not spend a lot of time talking about that. But really quick history lesson. He's born June 20th, 1894 in Hiroshima uh, to a sake brewing family, that, by all accounts, very well off, uh, very well educated children uh, in the family. And he goes and he studies sake brewing at the Osaka Technical High School, which actually today is known as Osaka University, that the lines between high school and college at that time were a little blurry in Japan. Right. Uh, but he didn't graduate. So he studied brewing, but he got really fascinated with fermentation. And he ends up getting hired in 1917 by the Setsu Distillery, uh, which is the leading producer of industrial alcohol in Japan at that time. And they're also specializing in imitation Western spirits and it turns out Taketsudo is a really quick study, and he fast becomes known within the company as an exceptionally gifted chemist. All right. So a little bit of context. 1894, as you said, when he was born, Japan is coming out of the, well, there was the Meiji Restoration a few decades prior, and they're really working hard to become a fully embraced world power and, and international trading partners for all of the big players out there. And in fact, just a month after he's born, England actually became the first Western country to sign a respect of sovereignty treaty, I guess for lack of a better term with Japan, which basically meant that England recognized Japan as a near equal on the world stage. And that was a huge thing for Japan at the time because it really elevated their stature on the global stage rather than being seen as what up to that point was a target for colonization i suppose japan was all of a sudden being put kind of almost shoulder to shoulder with some of the other power players in the world yeah that's a great summary christopher and i apologize but i actually thought you were going to mention that 1894 was the year that coca-cola was first bottled <laughs> What I just said, sorry, that was Spanish. I have no idea why I just blurred that out in Spanish. I said with cocaine, right? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I fully expected Snopes or one of the fact-checking websites to debunk that one. But actually, yes, apparently Coca-Cola contained quite a bit of cocaine uh, from 1894 to 1903. But there was a backlash in the public against cocaine. And being a savvy company, they started to remove the cocaine. But apparently, it was only cocaine-free as of 1929 when scientists finally learned how to remove all cocaine residue from, from coca leaf extract. <laughs> I did not know that. All right. Well, good on them. It's a, you know, that's, a, that's an early example of corporate social responsibility right there. Keep the 
cocaine out of the Coca-Cola. Anyways, <laughs> but let's think about where Japan is at this specific time. It's late 19th century and spilling over into the 20th century. This is a time of crazy change in Japan. This is when Japan is sending their best and brightest all over the world to study other countries, technology, um, engineering, various strains of science. And the Japanese public is also rapidly developing a taste for foreign goods. They're fascinated by foreign food and drinks. And this is probably why Setsu Distillery wants to send Taketsuru overseas to learn to make whiskey. That's right. But when does he get sent over? In 1918, that's during World War I, he sails from Japan to San Francisco, takes the transcontinental railroad across America, and then sails from New York to Liverpool. Oh my Lord, that must have been just a sleepless voyage. I mean, it's 1917. Germany has basically declared open season on merchant ships, passenger ships, anything that could pass for an allied boat on the water in the Atlantic. Yeah. I mean, this side of Taketsuda's story had never really occurred to me until we started doing research for this episode. I never really put this, these two things together, that he was going from the relative safety of Japan. Japan was minimally involved in World War I. And he travels right into essentially the heart of at least the naval war, which was both the, the German submarines poaching you know, civilian vessels. Jeez. Uh, and then, of course, the Germans trying to basically block any trade getting into England. And, and that was, you know, he's on a, he's on a ship headed for, for Liverpool. Uh, now, fortunately, he ended up not departing due to some delays. He ended up not departing New York until December of 1918. And the armistice officially ending the war was signed in November, 1918. So basically during his journey, the war ends from Japan to the UK. Ah, okay. But the vessel that he was on, actually, they were continuing to practice evasive maneuvers, zigzagging, basically, as they got into the, the waters where the submarines were known to have been, to the, such a point that his ship actually collided with another ship. Oh, jeez. During the voyage, the other ship sank. Huh. And only one person was rescued. So I guess he was on the larger boat. Jeez. Uh, but that was just, must have been such a, a harrowing experience. Oh, jeez. All right. So anyways, he, he survives this trip. Maybe he got more sleep than I had imagined, but he gets to Scotland and he starts studying English and chemistry at Glasgow University, where, as we know, many notable Japanese had studied, had studied and have studied over the years. I mean, Jokichi Takamine and um, Kanae Nagasawa both had studied there, right? That's right. There's a very long line of Japanese scholars who've studied at Glasgow University. And Taketsudo was following in their footsteps. And one of the first people he meets is a medical student named Ella Cowan, Cohen, Cowan, uh, whose brother was interested in martial arts. And it turns out that Taketsudo was a practitioner of judo. So he was not only this brilliant chemist and very uh, hardworking guy, but he also was apparently quite physically fit. He ends up spending Christmas 1918 as guests of the Cowan family and soon becomes their lodger. He actually ends up living with them. The father had passed away, so they needed income. It's the mother and, and the children who are all are reaching adulthood. And they took him in as a lodger to, to make a little extra money, I guess. 
And this also happens to be when he meets his future wife, Rita Cohen, or Cowan, who was Ella's older sister. And this is a pretty remarkable thing when you think about it. It's a, it's a Japanese immigrant in Scotland in 1918. And neither family was particularly pleased about the couple's engagement, but that came soon enough. And they were unable to stop it. So they ended up getting married too much long after that. And I remember reading at one point that Sets Distillery's leader, the guy who was running the show there, actually raced over to Scotland to try and throw a monkey wrench into the works. But it obviously did not have the effect that was intended. And this may have been the last straw for Taketsuru's parents. They had been hoping that he was going to come back and take over the family sake brewery. But that seemed like it wasn't going to happen with the progression in their son's life, their third son's life. And they soon turned that brewery over to relatives and it's still still up and running today. That's right. And actually, his two older brothers also decided to do something else. So they they were down to son number three. And that was strike number three when he decided he wanted to make whiskey rather than uh, than sake. And the other thing that's striking is Rita had actually just lost her fiance. He had died in the trenches of World War I. And so for her, this was almost a lifeline. She could have been a dowager. She could have been a, mm. you know, basically a, a spinster aunt uh, had she not had this second opportunity with this uh, interesting Japanese man who happened to come over for Christmas one year. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. The point of his trip to Scotland, obviously, was to learn how to make whiskey. And after doing some studies at the university and also at a, a, a research center in, in Glasgow, he ends up getting his first taste of making whiskey that spring of 1919 uh, at the Longmorn Distillery in the Speyside region. Now, he's only given a five-day internship, but he writes down everything imaginable. Yeah. And over the summer, he ends up getting a longer internship at the Bowness Distillery, which is actually a grain whiskey distillery used for blending uh, scotches. Mm -hmm. uh, so he learns how to use the coffee still, which for those of you, you know, this isn't really a spoiler, Nika coffee whiskey is a thing right? Still today. So, and then he ends up spending the second half of 1919 in Bordeaux, learning how to make French wine. Uh, hmm. And then goes back to spend Christmas again with the Coens and proposes to Rita on Christmas day. Right. So a year after they meet, they're engaged. Yeah. And of course she accepted as, as we know, I intimated that they got married after that. But again, thinking about that time and place, you know, France had been absolutely flattened in World War One, And yet less than a year after the armistice was signed, Taketsuru is making wine in Bordeaux. I mean, what an incredible time to have been in that part of the world. The things that he must have seen and experienced just boggle the mind. I agree. It really is an incredible time that he ended up in Europe, even if it was just for a couple of years or so. I mean, Rita and Masan, as she used to call him, which is a, a basically a nickname uh, that she used to call him. They were married in January 1920 and promptly moved to Campbellton, Scotland, where he did a five-month internship at the Hazelburn Distillery. This was actually the largest distillery in Campbellton at the time. And this is where Taketsudu gets most of his knowledge from. And 
in his extensive notes from his three different distillery internships, those become essentially the whiskey making Bible in Japan. And they're still read today, really how to make uh, the Scotch style of whiskey. It's basically, well, today it would be considered nearly corporate espionage. But yeah, he was dissecting and detailing, noting down every single detail of the whiskey making process that he could lay his eyes on. And by the time he and Rita returned to Japan, the country has really been transformed. And it's the end of World War I. Of course, the war years were a financial boon for Japan. But after the war ended, economic recession was really what everybody was looking at. Setsu Distillery is no longer interested in making what would have been a very hefty capital investment to put the stills in and start a real malt whiskey operation. And Taketsuru resigns because he was no longer interested. He, he had, considering everything that he had learned and considering the fact that he was the premier expert on real whiskey making in the entire country, he wasn't about to play party to Setsu's old tricks of making imitation whiskey and other spirits that, you know, they cooked up out of nothing from their imaginations in the distillery. That's right. And this has got to be one of the most difficult times in his life because he spent all of that time learning how to make real whiskey. He's excited to come back and, and those dreams are crushed. Right. He ends up getting a job teaching middle school chemistry. Yeah. Can you imagine going from like the storied halls of Glasgow University to the Hazelburn Distillery, the largest distillery in Campbelltown? All of these experiences, making wine in Bordeaux, and now you're a middle school chemistry teacher again. Hey, uh, respect, respect. Sure. He's, yeah. he's a, he was a principal gentleman. I have a ton of respect for that. And, and heading into education when something else doesn't work out, there's no shame. Not at all. Not at all. Of course. Uh, fortunately, there is a silver lining, as I'm sure everybody knows. There was a visionary businessman who was already making plans for a whiskey distillery, Shinjiro Tori was running an alcohol company called Kotobukiya, which he had made successful by developing Akadama port wine. This was actually Spanish wine mixed with flavorings to make it more palatable to Japanese drinkers. Mm. So not so different from the imitation spirits that Setsu and others were making. But Tori actually also sold his own imitation whiskeys under his own uh, labels by bottling products made by Setsu. Right. Uh, so he already knew Taketsuru. In fact, he was supposedly among those who saw him off at Kobe port uh, when Taketsuru left for San Francisco. Man, Tori was just an absolute dreamer and a legend in his own right. I mean, he goes from being an apprentice at what was essentially a pharmacy and a liquor shop all rolled into one, which I think is an absolutely wonderful idea because <laughs> different types of medication, obviously. And, and then he opens his own small sundries store, which crashes and burns. And then he develops this sweetened wine that is still sold today. And he uses the revenue from those sales to open Japan's first legitimate malt whiskey operation, which has grown into one of the largest spirits conglomerates in the world. I mean, that's a pretty amazing rags to riches story, is it not? No question. I mean, it's fascinating what happens when you get these two men together to start the Yamazaki distillery. You have Tori's incredible business sense and 
Taketsuru's singular focus on craftsmanship, and they build one of the most iconic distilleries in the world on their first and only try. Yeah. The relationship didn't last long. And that actually would have profound effects on not only the Japanese whiskey world, but the whiskey world more broadly. Sure. And I think this finally brings us back to Pocky Day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, back to November 11th, 1924 at 11.11 11 p.m. So Taketsuru wanted to build the distillery in Hokkaido because he believed it's the climate that was most like Scotland. But Tori wanted to build the distillery in Yamazaki because it was close to Tokyo and Osaka, which is where most of the drinkers were. Tori won because he's footing the bill. Sure. But he left production completely up to Takatsuru. But things didn't go exactly to plan as far as anyone can tell. April 1929, Suntory Whiskey comes out with their white label or what is called Shirofuda. And it's just... It flops like a fish on land. Taketsuru had made what was essentially a pretty smoky scotch. And that wasn't going to fly. People, Japanese drinkers weren't down for it. And it was expensive too, which did not help. And after, you know, a couple of years of trial and error, Mr. Tori's patience runs out. And Taketsuru basically gets sideways promoted, which is the same as almost a demotion. And he's sent to Yokohama to run a beer brewery, which is something that he's never done before. He tries to make the most of it, but the writing's on the wall. And I think it's around this time that he starts to think about his next move. That's right. And I'm not sure that it's even when he starts to think about it. I think he always had this in the back of his mind. Sure. He had gone and scouted Hokkaido back in the 20s. Right. So even before he went to work for Tori, for Santori, he had begun thinking about Hokkaido as a location for a distillery. And I'm imagining, he was ambitious. I would imagine that he was thinking long-term. He wasn't going to be with Santori forever, but he was under a 10-year contract and he was paid very, very well by all accounts. He was making about four times the average worker's salary yeah. uh, in Japan at the time. So he and Rita were quite comfortable, but he resigns in frustration. Now, fortunately, Rita has been busy. She's been doing what seems like every foreigner comes to Japan to do at some point in their time here. She was teaching English. Mm -hmm. And she was teaching English to the wives of Japanese industrialists. So when Taketsuri resigns in March 1934, he's already got a new plan in the works. Just three months later, he announces the incorporation of Dai Nippon Kaju, or the Great Japan Juice Company, uh, with him as the executive director. Right. A juice company. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I think there's two reasons here. One is just like uh, Tori needed his Akadama wine to become successful before he could afford to build a whiskey distillery. Taketsudu needed some quick capital from his business because whiskey takes a long time to make, right? Right. You ferment, you distill, and then you wait and wait and wait and wait. So... Uh, he decided because Hokkaido had rich apple orchards that he wanted to make apple juice because juice had become popular uh, in Japan at the time. But really, I think the reason for it was he had just left Tori right. and he didn't want to piss off Mr. Tori. So he went under the guise of opening a juice company so that Tori wouldn't feel like he was being disloyal. Yeah, he must have known though. <laughs> he <laughs> sure, had to have sure. known. 
<laughs> he's like, he's finally getting his dream moving to Hokkaido. Everything that he had tried to get Tori to pay for years before. Now he, now he found other people to pay for it. <laughs> That's right. Now, of course, making juice isn't that easy, apparently. I don't know. I've never tried, but fair enough. Uh, apparently, the juice wasn't very good either. Apparently, it was really cloudy. It was a little bit sour. Probably wasn't the right apples to make apple juice. Uh, and he, he tried to do it by reading a book. Mm-hmm. You know, he went to Scotland and spent a couple of years of his life learning how to make whiskey. But when it came time to make juice, he read a book. So clearly, this wasn't his passion. So he ended up needing a, another cash infusion from his investors. And they basically took all the apple juice back they couldn't sell. And they fermented that and distilled it into apple brandy, which became their first product. But without his deep-pocketed investors, it's possible his business dreams would have died a quick and painful death. But he managed to establish the Yoichi Distillery in Hokkaido, and they released their first product, Nika, in 1940. And this is now time for World War II, basically. We've, we've made it that far. And World War II for whiskey distilleries was not a horrible time just because the Japanese Navy became a huge customer for them. They basically couldn't get their steady supply of scotch because trade had been completely, almost completely shut off uh, during these this time. And they were buying whiskey from both Yamazaki and Yoichi, basically. That's right. It, Taketsudo has an interesting relationship with the military in Japan. He does. In World War I, he goes to basically register to see whether or not he needs to enlist. And when the recruiting officer sees on his application that he's involved in the production of industrial alcohol. He gave him a failing score and said, sorry, we need people to make fuel for our, our equipment. So, Mm. you know, go make the best fuel you can. And so he's sent home. He doesn't end up enlisting and, and becoming a part of the Japanese military. Flash forward to World War II. And there were, there was rationing happening all over Japan. You've got an island nation that's being embargoed and they need resources, but he could continue to get coal and grain to make whiskey because that was considered a necessary product for the functioning of the Japanese military. So in both instances, he remains a civilian and yet he's considered someone who's contributing to the war effort, uh, which is kind of wild if you think about it. And a lot of distilleries actually end up getting converted to industrial alcohol production for fuel during World War II. Right. Uh, Yoichi was not. So they continued to make whiskey rather than uh, jet fuel. But there were other distilleries all around the country, including one of uh, Suntory's distilleries was converted to to jet fuel production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even after the war, whiskey is almost a, it's, it's a huge lifeline for Taketsuru because he goes from selling to the Japanese military to selling to the U.S. military because the U.S. was in need of of decent whiskey. And and so they came a knocking. And actually, this is kind of funny. It's a little bit of a blast from the past for me. But Masan was the name of a serial morning drama on NHK for a while. And it was the story of Masataka Taketsuru's you know, journey to becoming the godfather of whiskey in Japan. And it involved the war years, of course. And I happened to be in a few scenes where I was one of the U.S. military personnel coming to his distillery up in Hokkaido to say, hey, listen, we hear you make good stuff. Sell it to us 
or else basically was the message. <laughs> um, so I was in a scene with both uh, the actor playing Masan and the actor playing his wife, Rita. That's, that's great. I remember seeing that episode. It was a lot of fun. Um, but I guess that's enough history. I mean, there's so much more we can talk about because what this basically leads to, we're, we're actually cutting this here, I think. What this leads to is an intense rivalry between Suntory and Nika. And at the time, neither of those companies were going by those names, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Suntory was still Kotobukiya, and they had branded their whiskey as Suntory, which is a fun name, actually, because the, uh, the Akadama, the red ball wine, it looks like the, the, the rising sun on the Japanese flag, if you look at the label of, of that wine. Mm-hmm. And so Sun and then his surname, Tori, that's how he came up with the branding for Suntory. And then Nika was still the Dainihon Kuju or Kaju, right? The fruit company, yeah. the fruit juice company. Right. And they kept those names for quite some time after, after this period. But I don't want to get into that rivalry. It's a fascinating story of its own. And maybe we'll do an episode about that in the future. But I really want to talk about how everything that we've talked about leads us to where Japanese whiskey is today, independent mm-hmm. of who can make the cheapest, best whiskey wars, which happened all throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s. But really, how did both these two men meeting and working together and ultimately becoming rivals, but also their character and especially Taketsuda's character really drive Japanese whiskey to become what it's become, at least in its premium expressions. And I think the thing that strikes me about Taketsuda is he really, really was a shokunin. He really was a craftsman. No doubt. He was most interested in making the highest quality product possible. And for a long time, he refused to make the cheap whiskey. He, he refused to make the a little bit of malt blended with a whole lot of brewer's alcohol. Right. Which is what most people were making and bottling as whiskey uh, back in the early days. And even today, a lot of that's still made. And he was always resistant to that. So I think his his character as a shokunin, I think, is certainly in play here. And yet he was a really unique individual. He married a foreign woman, mm-hmm. brought her back to Japan to live. He apparently, by all accounts, he was quite outspoken. Uh, this, this comes from uh, verbal histories from some of the distillery workers at Nika who remember working with him. But he didn't strike them as Japanese. He had this very pronounced mustache. He carried himself quite proudly. And he was headstrong. But of course, he was also disciplined, right? That shokunin attitude, that craftsmanship. He, he just never wanted to cut corners. Yeah. And to, to me, that's such a, a key point of his story and what, why he matters so much for Japanese whiskey, because that encapsulates so much of what premium Japanese whiskey is today. It is really remarkable because he was from a sake-making background, at least his family was. And he, by all accounts, as a teenager had sort of, or maybe even before that, had was being groomed to take over the family business. And he seemed amenable to that. But then he just fell headlong into this world of Western spirits, namely whiskey. And it's amazing how many times he faced significant financial hurdles, significant geographical hurdles, and yet never gave up on his dream of making as authentic a whiskey as he possibly could. Now, what what authentic actually was in practice 
is a lot less than what we would consider to be an authentic whiskey today. But those were the times. There was uh, not a lot of money to be spent on these sorts of things. And if you were going to try to do a pure anything resembling a pure malt whiskey, you were going to have to charge what today would be the equivalent of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars. So um, he was, you're right. I think headstrong is a good way to put it. I think at times his craftsmanship, which was a very significant part of his DNA, got in the way of better business decisions uh, at several junctures in his story. But he just, he refused to concede. He refused to give up. And, you know, you stick with it long enough and you keep working at it, things will eventually turn in your direction, it seems. That's right. And I think part of what helped him was the connections that he made. At this time, Japan is emerging as an industrial power but the number of people actually doing this kind of work is quite small. It's a pretty narrow window. The only uh, school of brewing in the country at the time was at Osaka University, where he, was, where he studied. And so he ended up through one of his professors, he was introduced to one of the alumni, uh, Kiichiro Iwai, uh, right. who introduced him to Setsu. So, but Kiichiro Iwai actually ended up taking Taketsuru's Bible, his whiskey making Bible, and creating the Mars Shinshu distillery in Nagano. Yeah, right. And so once Taketsudu ends up at Setsu distillery to start working to make these imitation spirits, that's when he meets uh, Tori, because Tori was a customer of Setsu. Right. And so these connections lead him into this world that lead him to Scotland and his relationship with the Yamazaki distillery, actually building that distillery for Tori. Or Suntory. And one of the industrialists that invested in his original company when he started Nika was very good friends with the owner of Asahi Beer. So when they needed grain distillate for blending to make Nika more affordable, as Christopher said, if you were selling malt whiskey at the time, it would have been the equivalent of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Asahi built a grain distillery and sold the distillate to Nika. And then as time went on, uh, Asahi ends up becoming the principal owner of Nika. Yep. And again, it's because of these connections that he had that he couldn't have done this on his own, even though he is clearly and, and rightly considered the father of Japanese whiskey. He had these, these people who really helped him get there along the way. Yeah, somebody's got to have the pockets full of money, that's for sure. And it's often not the craftspeople who are carrying around the cash. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... You know, it's funny because Tori was so, such a consummate businessman, right? Everything about, even today, everything about Suntory products, it's really well-made spirits in beautiful packaging, really well-branded, incredible marketing campaigns. And that's true even today. Definitely. And yet, I feel like Taketsudu was almost anti-that. He was completely focused on the quality of his products, and he wanted that to be what spoke uh, to people. And I think one of the really telling examples of this was when he released Nika Super, which is a blended whiskey made with, with uh, premium distillates that was, I think when it first came out, it sold for 3000 yen a bottle. And that's more than it sells for today. It's like 2,500 yen a bottle today. Yeah. But at the time they were using hand blown glass bottles and each cap, each glass stopper had to be custom made for each hand blown glass bottle. 
Yeah, because all the necks were different diameters, right? Exactly, exactly. So that was the level of craftsmanship that he he put into this. And it's just so different from Suntory, which is everything done at scale, everything done beautifully. Well, and yeah, and, and Tori was, you know, he, he was famous for the whole tied house concept. Basically, they went out and opened thousands of, of Tori's bars where they could control what was available to drink there, something that's completely illegal in the United States. You can't, there, there are very strict tied house rules. And they got their products on shelves all across the country very, very quickly. And he was, he was just a, he was a consummate business person. I think, I think you're right. There was a resistance to doing things that way, which maybe Taketsuru viewed, and he took a, I think he probably took a pretty dim view of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do think you're right about that. And it, in fact, in his, in his travel log, in his writings from his travels uh, across the US and, and in Scotland, he mentions it, that he was, um, he was struck because after he arrived in San Francisco, an acquaintance of his invited him to visit a winemaker uh, outside of Sacramento and it happened to be this very large industrial wine producing company. In his notes, he wrote, I'm not sure that Americans are capable of making high quality alcohol. <laughs> Because seeing at the industrial scale, because he he contrasted that with his experience later visiting these and working with these family vineyards in Bordeaux, where he saw the ultimate craftsmanship in French wines. And he really was drawn to that small craftsmanship side of things. And I wonder if that's not part of why he decided to open his distillery as far away from civilization as possible. Sure. It was like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go be a craftsman up in up in Hokkaido in the sticks and people will find me. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what he would think if he saw Nika today and how big it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, he survived long enough that he saw the expansion of the company to pretty large scale. I mean, even as in 1952, this is when they decided that it was time to change the name of the company. uh, 60% of their sales were still in Hokkaido. So only 40% 40% of all of their volume was being sold outside of Hokkaido. So they were really still a regional brand at that time. Mm-hmm. But by the time they opened the Miyagi-kyo distillery and installed a coffee still, you know, you're talking about the late 60s, uh, I think he's, he's starting to see Nika become a, uh, at least a national brand, probably not a global brand. But I think he, he seemed to go along with it. Maybe not at the scale that, that Tori was pushing Suntory, which was, he was already going international at that time. But, um, right. Yeah. It's such an interesting contrast between these two though. And, but it was a rivalry. These guys did not get along. No. And they didn't trade casks. (laughs) No, I'm not sure they ever spoke after, after the rupture of their relationship. And that's exactly right. The trading of casks is something that simply is not done in Japan. Uh, it wasn't until what a year or two ago that we had our first collaboration whiskey in Japan. Right. Yeah. It was a long time coming. A couple of the new makers decided to to do some swaps and, and make products blending their malt whiskey with uh with the other distilleries' malt whiskeys. And mm-hmm. so but what that did to Japanese whiskey, I think in some ways is makes it a really unique part of the whiskey story globally, and that's that each distillery had to make different kinds of malt whiskey with a wide variety of stills in each distillery. And then they also opened additional distilleries with different uh, production methods and elevations and you know climate 
and and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, and and they end up doing their blends internally, which I think that's that's the positive of it. The negative of it, I think, is is what you've hinted at earlier, and that's that a lot of what's sold as whiskey in Japan is really a blend of malt whiskey with essentially the imitation stuff, right? The yeah, the raw distillate. The the final product is still kind of an imitation whiskey because it's mostly not whiskey. So, mm-hmm. um, and that's still true today. Yeah, I remember somebody asking me why why doesn't Suntory sell Kakubin, which is their iconic blended whiskey in the states, right? And I realized the reason is Kakubin probably wouldn't qualify as whiskey in the states. It's not whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Um, so, yeah, that's a. And that finally, as we know, as we talked about last year, the new whiskey regulations, that's another podcast that people can go back to, to reference the new whiskey regulations, which aren't actually law. They're just policies and guidelines are trying to move the industry away from those old practices of basically putting in a little, little bit of malt whiskey with a whole bunch of other stuff, a whole bunch of other spirits and making it taste like a whiskey and smell like a whiskey that we're trying to move away from but that didn't really come into force until 2021 so it's pretty crazy we're about 100 years after what everybody considers to be the birth of japanese whiskey we finally get to the point where it's actually whiskey you know that's (laughs) pretty remarkable took 100 years for a large percentage of the market for sure now of course this is different than the single malt whiskeys, which we've talked about, you know, the premium whiskeys here in Japan, but they cost quite a bit more than the, the standard things. I mean, a bottle of Yoichi non-age statement is about 5,500 yen uh, in Japan and a bottle of Nika clear, <laughs> yeah, which clearly is not real whiskey is 800, 900, 1200 yen. I think so. Yeah. Any, anything that uses that I'm so jaded against that word clear as a brand name now because there's there's like clear imitation beer. Mm-hmm. There's clear imitation brands of whiskey. Anything that has clear on it now, I'm like, oh, that's got to be fake. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. I just automatic. It's a knee-jerk reaction now because so many brands have used it. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, but by all accounts, there are some very good uh, blended whiskeys that are 100% within the the labeling standards uh, here in Japan, even some of the relatively affordable brands. Uh, but maybe we'll save that for another episode. It's a, another episode. Yeah. Well, cool. Any, any closing thoughts? Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess for some reason I had always been drawn more to Nika than Suntory. And I, I enjoy both of their products immensely. I really, I love, I've talked about it before. A Hakushu highball is my favorite kind of highball, mm. right? And that's single malt whiskey from Suntory. Sure. But in, in preparing for this episode, I went back and I, I did a side-by-side tasting of uh, Yoichi, Miyagi-kyo, and Nika Super. So three different products that um, Taketsuru was involved in developing. In fact, Super was one of the last products he, he developed. Um, and they're all lovely and they're all distinctive. And... It's just really interesting to be able to taste these things side by side with all of this context in mind mm. of him and his life and and what he was dedicated to. And it really enhances your enjoyment of, of the drinks, I think. How about you? 
I think what I take away from all of this is that there is a lot of history at play here that unfortunately sways me one way or the other in terms of my sympathies. I started my tenure in Japan being a very, very big fan of Suntory Premium Malts, which is the Suntory top brand beer that they put out. But the more that I learned about Taketsuru kind of being shunted to the side and all the bad breaks he got and how he just had a hard time with everything. He's kind of the underdog and I always root for their underdog. So I think I'm kind of swinging more in his direction now. And they're owned by Kirin, is that right? Asahi. Asahi. <laughs> well, that's a problem. Yeah, that is. <laughs> ABA. <laughs> ABA. Oh, man. But anyways, it's great to have these people who are so part and parcel with the entire story and the genesis of these beautiful products and who, you know, hopefully would be appreciative of the artistry, the crafts work that goes into all of the new distilleries that are popping up left, right, and center and how they're trying to differentiate themselves, how they're trying to stay true to tradition while still, you know, kind of finding the edges, the, uh, the boundaries working slightly outside the box. I think just as exciting as it was during the first part of the last century, the first part of this century is going to be incredibly exciting in the whiskey world in Japan, just because it's breaking new ground. Pretty much everybody's doing it. And I think there's a lot of promise in the years ahead. And I, I can't imagine that these businesses will have anything but uh, successes as we look forward to them trying to find their footing in Japan and also hopefully find their footing overseas. Yeah. I mean, just taking that step back and realizing that all of this history is still less than 100 years old, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is crazy. Well, thank you all very much for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about Masataka Taketsuru, his wife Rita Kawan, and the entire Nikawitsuki story, then please check the show notes for this episode for plenty of resources, including links to Stefan Van Eyken's Whiskey Rising and, of course, Stephen Lyman's own book, The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. Stephen, how about you? You can also reach out to me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. I'd also like to recommend Japanese Whiskey by Brian Ashcraft and The Way of Whiskey by Dave Broom. It's a really lyrical look at uh, all of this. It's, it's a fascinating read. And of course, namunication.jp for all things Japanese Whiskey. Just a great resource, uh, all sorts of current and historic information on there. Also, please tune in to our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday, every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Wednesday in Japan. Thanks once again for joining us here for another edition of Japan Distilled from both of us reporting from Japan, a very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Kanpai. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Distilled podcast. This has been Christopher Pellegrini with my co-host Stephen Lyman. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Audio engineering by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you're interested in Japanese fables and ghost stories. Time's up, I'm